find Genesis chapter 2 tonight before our prayer time. Genesis 2. We're going to begin tonight at verse 4. Genesis 2, verse 4. Looking tonight at the subject matter simply entitled, More on the Beauty of Creation. More on the Beauty of Creation. Genesis chapter 2. Got it? Beginning in verse 4, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to, to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. The, the, it, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper uh, fit for him or suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now I want to say up front, I'm, I'm very grateful for the exposition and the commentary by Dr. James Montgomery uh, Boyce. And I'll be indebted to much of what he says uh, depending on him at, at several points uh, tonight. And so I like to give credit where credit is due. But let's remember where we have been so far. We've been looking at the creation narrative, and we've seen that the days, I, I believe they are, they are 24-hour literal days as we know them. That's what we've seen so far. Uh, we've seen God forming the earth and then filling the earth. 
A very symmetrical presentation given here. Forming and then filling. Uh, we've seen that God made each thing with the ability to reproduce within its own species. And we've also seen that after each day, God saw what he had made and he pronounced it as being good and finally very good. Then we saw God resting and giving us a pattern for rest that we see later on when he gave the law. And his instructions to man is that based on the creation narrative and what God did, what are we to do in our work? We're to work six days and rest the seventh. Now, as the New Testament points out, this rest has a further implication that has to do with our salvation and with our glorification one day. Right now, we have rest from our labors in the sense of salvation when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. What we strive for, and what is it that we strive for? We strive to be at peace with God. To be reconciled to God. Well, what we strive for comes not from our own human efforts, but it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So in Christ, we have rest. But in the future, the writer of Hebrews talks about this rest that we have in Christ will be an eternal rest. It will continue all through the future. Hebrews 4 speaks of that specifically. Now with that said, let's continue tonight as we look at verses uh, 4 and following of chapter 2. And first of all, if you're taking notes this evening, I want to simply address critical issues. So under number 1, if you're taking notes, addressing critical issues. I want you to remember with me for a moment when the Pharisees asked the Lord Jesus Christ about divorce, what did he do? He quoted the Old Testament. He quoted from the early chapters of the book of Genesis. Now first, he referred to the statement that God had made man male and female. He said, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And then he went on to refer to the specific statement about marriage. He said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. I want you to understand what's happening there. One of those quotations Jesus offered comes from Genesis chapter 1. And the other part of the quotation comes from what? Genesis chapter 2. In other words, Jesus seems to be regarding the two opening chapters of Genesis as belonging to one harmonious account. Now, you may not know what I'm getting at. For years, liberal scholars have said that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are not one harmonious account but separate accounts. And not just separate accounts, but separate accounts that even contradict one another. Such ideas began even before a scholar by the name of, of Gene Ostruck. Gene deliver, uh, Dr. Gene Ostruck, he delivered a monumental work on the different sources behind Genesis. And his work was published in 1753. Now, he noted, he noted that in the Hebrew text of Genesis, God is referred to by two different names. The first name in chapter 1 is Elohim. 
And the other name is Jehovah. Yahweh or Jehovah. And he tried to reason that that was evidence in and of itself that two different writers, at least two different writers, were behind the two creation accounts. The name of God in Genesis 1 is Elohim, and the name of God in Genesis chapter 2 is Jehovah. Now, today liberal scholars believe that they have identified not two separate sources, but at least how many? At least four. At least four different sources. There's the J source, they say, which designates verses in Genesis where God is called Jehovah. There's the E source where God is referred to as Elohim. Then there's the priestly source. Anytime in the Pentateuch, the first five chapter, uh, first five books of the Bible, where any type of legal matters or matters of the law, anything pertaining to the priesthood is spoken about, they believe that's a, a P source, the priestly source. And then the book of Deuteronomy is the D source. So the J-E-D-P, or the documentary hypothesis. And so again, what they say, what you have in the first five books of the Bible, is at least four different sources, four different authors. Now, in defense of one source, that one source being who? Moses. You have Jesus. You have Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament quoting from all different books of the Pentateuch and saying who wrote it. Moses. Exactly. Now, if Jesus is God, do you believe he's God? God the Son? I hope you do. If we believe that Jesus... Is God the Son? Do you think Jesus ought to know who the source of the Pentateuch is? I think he ought to know. And so if Jesus quoted from different parts of the Pentateuch and attributed it to Moses, guess what? That's good enough for me. And I hope it is for you. Now, in addition to that, the names are not as clear-cut as liberal scholars would have us to believe. For example, the word for God in Genesis chapter 2 is not simply Jehovah. It's actually Jehovah Elohim. Both names are mentioned. It never ceases to amaze me how liberals will try to twist the truth to make their point. It would seem better to say that, that Elohim, the creator God of Genesis 1, is none other than Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, who will show up in the rest of the book. Jehovah, the more personal name for God, is also very appropriate for chapter 2. Why? Because in chapter 2, that's where we're going to see God's personal relationship with man being developed. Old Testament scholars like Dr. E.J. Young also mention another criticism of liberal scholarship. He said, if the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch as a whole is this brilliant meshing together of these four different sources, then they certainly made, made a major blunder in chapter 2. Because with two different names of God indicating two different sources as they say, then what we have here, according to Dr. Young, is a blunder because in Genesis 2, the differing and conflicting accounts have been mistakenly merged together. 
So again, even linguistically, the thought of four different accounts doesn't seem to be very consistent. But as already mentioned, even, even more conclusive for Christians today should be the testimony of Jesus and the apostles on this matter. Well, secondly tonight, let's just simply cover further details on the narrative itself. Further details on the narrative itself, the creation narrative. Remember, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, tells what? Tells about the seventh day of creation, and therefore, prop, every, just about everybody believes the first three verses of chapter 2 actually belong with chapter 1. The chapters and verse divisions were added later. They're not a part of the inspired text. I hope you know that. And so it's believed that, that verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 should be the conclusion of chapter 1. And so then the so-called second creation account begins where? At verse 4. Now, it's not a second creation account at all, but that's where the second account supposedly begins. Now, beginning in verse 4, we can, we can either take it as a subscript concluding 1-1 through 2-3, or as a superscript introducing verses 5 and following. Now let's just talk about that a moment and we'll, we'll just talk about some implications of that and then we'll move on tonight to more practical issues. There are 11 verses like verse 4 scattered throughout Genesis. 11 verses like that. There's 2-4, there's 5-1, there's 6, 9. There's 10, 1. There's chapter 11, verse 10. Chapter 11, verse 27. Chapter 25, verse 12. 25, 19. 36, 1. 36, 9. And 37, 2. 11 verses of a similar transitional nature. In those 11 verses, again, they are taken either to summarize what just went before or, or to introduce what follows. It all sort of hinges on the Hebrew word that the NIV translates as account, the word account, and the older versions, such as the authorized version, translate as generations. If you take it to be account, then you can see how in each case there is the narrative or the storyline that is being advanced, and then it's concluded with a verse that says, so this is the account. Such as, this, is, this, this brings to an end the account of Adam. This brings to an end the account of Noah. So forth and so on. Probably the better way of looking at it is not to translate it as account, but rather generations. And to say that it introduces what follows. And so 5.1, for example, would introduce the descendants of Adam, the descendants of Adam would follow. 6-9 would introduce the descendants of Noah that would follow. And so forth and so on. Now, what this means, when we look at the structure of the book of Genesis, it would mean that Chapter 1, verse 1, going through verse 3 of chapter 2 is a very brief 
creation account. And then from verse 4 of chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 50 would give us the generations of whatever respective character is being named. What that means additionally is that chapter 2 verse 4 does not introduce a second creation story at all. Instead, what we're being told is what will follow creation is more details on man. And from here on out in the book, what we're going to have is the account of man And we're going to see the problems that the sin of the first man and woman and all following men and women, what their sins have created, the problems. So I think that's the better way of looking at the book. That the creation account in and of itself is is very brief. Chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3. And the rest of the book is talking about man. Each main character and his descendants. And the problems that they face. Okay, thirdly tonight. Let's look at more details on the man and woman. More details on the man and woman. We notice that in this chapter, the chronological sequence following in chapter 1 is dropped. In chapter 1 we saw what? First day, second day, third day, so forth and so on. That chronological sequence is dropped and now what's picked up is more of a topical sequence that takes over. Now in chapter 1 we were told that man was created in the image of God. Here we find more details given about how God made the first man and the woman. Now when it comes to making the man and the woman, what does modern man try to do? Modern man tries to answer this apart from the biblical revelation. To the zoologist, man is called, as one has described us, the naked ape. Man's just an animal without the fur that covers his whole body. Karl Marx said that the essence of man is in his labor. What he does with his hands, so to speak. Existentialists say that man is essentially volitional. His uniqueness is found in the fact that he has a will. What did Hugh Hefner say? Hugh Hefner tried to point out that man is simply sensual and he's to be understood in terms of his fleshly passions. Now what do all of those things lack? They lack the biblical perspective. They are all reductionistic. What do I mean by reductionistic? They may see part of the picture of what, it's, what is involved in being man and woman, but they don't see the whole picture, the picture that the Bible gives. Folks, what we need to do is see man and woman from the biblical revelation. We see here that man is a combination of what is low and what is high. Now what do I mean by that? On the one hand, he was formed from the dust of the earth. Now folks, let's remember at this point, even the dust of the earth is what? It's good, right? It's good. On the other hand, man has been breathed into by what? The very breath of God. 
Now, Martin Luther felt that man in his original state must have been quite an extraordinary specimen. Luther felt that since sin and the effects of sin had not entered into the created order yet, meaning that the effects of sin had not even entered into the the genetic makeup, you know, after sin and entering into the very created order, you, you have sickness and disease and death and all. But before sin, man's a perfect specimen. All of these defects, the effects of sin, haven't entered in yet to, to the human makeup. And so Luther felt like Adam would have been perfect and strong in every regard. In fact, he felt like Adam would have been even stronger than the lion. And his eyesight would have been keener than the eagle's. And then he said, Eve, imagine Eve. How beautiful women are. Um, Imagine a woman, the first created woman before sin has entered the picture. And and then the, the generation since Adam and Eve, every generation, it's like sin is more and more and more in the gene pool. Imagine what Eve would have looked like. Here would have been the first couple before sin. Perfect in every way. Also, we see details here about a garden. God is preparing the special place where the man and his wife are to dwell. Now, when this chapter speaks of the trees, the water, the four rivers, the animals, it's not speaking of these as stages of creation like what we saw back in chapter 1 because that's already happened. Each of these parts is spoken of here in the past tense. Something God's already formed. It's not, however, the water or the plants of the entire globe that's the focus here, but it's those that have a bearing on the life of Adam within the garden. The point here is things being described in chapter 2 are things in creation that are going to have a special benefit upon Adam. And they're going to be a special delight to him. Now, folks, when you think of a garden, can anything be more delightful than that? Especially in a desert climate. Now, think about this, too. Remember in the created order, what has God said after each day? Good and very good. So already everything's very good. But now there's this pristine garden within the midst of a creation that's already being pronounced as being very good. In other words, what I'm saying, it must have been a very beautiful garden. A very wonderful garden beyond anything that you and I would know today. And then we're told about the rivers. We know where the Tigris and Euphrates are located, but we don't know about the other two. It may be that geography after the flood, after the flood, geography has been altered a little, so we don't know exactly. These rivers might have changed their course a little bit from what they were in chapter 2. John Calvin believed that the names of the unknown rivers have simply changed in time, and therefore, while the flood may have changed their courses, they may still be present today. Whatever the best answer is, it is assumed that Moses is writing to people who at that time would have known exactly the the bodies of water that he was talking about. Now, we see God also giving Adam the very special work of naming and classifying the animals. What's the big deal there? To be able to name something, to classify the different animals. What's the significance in that? Showing dominion 
And to name something means to, to, to exercise a certain control over it. Ownership, control, dominion, authority over to be able to name something. Adam was also to work the garden. Now obviously after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, what do we find out about work? By the sweat of the brow. Your work's going to be more difficult. But before Genesis 3, was work that way? No, not that way at all. Work was joyous with great purpose. Part of being made in the image of God is having work and even creating as part of that work. Adam's work would have been productive in a sense that we don't even know about. Because we struggle against all these forces in nature, against what we do. Adam wouldn't have experienced that. We also learn here something about the man and the woman that we would not have picked up on from Genesis chapter 1. And what is that? How God made them, but guess what we see? Guess what else we see? Amen. Amen. Yes. Amen. But what we see here is that they were not made at the same time. They were not made at the same time. They're both made in the image of God, but not at the same time. And we see a further description in chapter 2 of how God made them. Now, we don't know how long Adam existed alone. We're not told. But you can certainly see that as Adam was naming the animals, he had to have noticed something. There's two of everything. There's Mr. Elephant and Mrs. Elephant and Mr. Giraffe and Mrs. Giraffe and Mr. Dog and Mrs. Dog and Mr. Cat and Mrs. Cat. And... Right? He would have noticed two of everything, male and female. And what was it about male and female? God had made it so they were to reproduce. But for Adam, what are we told? There was no one corresponding to him. And so for the very first time in the book of Genesis, for the very first time in the Bible, something happens. What is it? What have we been told through chapter 1? Good. This is good. God saw this. It's good. God saw this. Good. 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 Very good. Now what do we see? That's what I'm saying. This is the first mention. Of previous, it's been all positive. <laughs> when God made the woman, Adam immediately realized that, that she was not just that she was not just made for him to be the perfect companion, but she was made from him. Because what does he say about her? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But then in childbirth, what happened? 
if, if the woman came from Adam's rib, then in childbirth what happens? Man comes from woman. So what do we see there? What do we see there? Mutual dependency. Mutual dependency. The woman was made from the man's body. Now, the man's body and childbirth comes from the woman. Fourthly, I want you to see the union of man and woman. Begin reading with me in verse 18. In verse 18, it says, "Then the, we've already covered this, but God says it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him or corresponding to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, in the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I've already hinted at the fact that God said it's not good for the man to be alone. And so we see right away that man was created for companionship that nothing else on the face of the earth could take care of. Only somebody corresponding to Adam. Someone different from him, but at the same time, while being different from him, yet corresponding to him, someone with whom he could reproduce would meet his need. All of those criteria had to be met. All of those criteria had to be met. Someone like him but someone different from him, someone who with the two of them together could have children. And so right away, we have one of the defining characteristics of the marriage relationship, right? In same-sex relationships... There may can be companionship on a certain level. But there is not the difference within unity. And there's no ability together to reproduce children. Right? And even Jesus later on affirmed that. What about marriage? What about divorce and marriage? Jesus, what Jesus do? Carried them back to the beginning, what was said in Genesis. So we could say with the marriage relationship, man needs companionship, right? As Paul states, writing to the Corinthians, there are cases. And Paul seems to talk about it like it's, it's a minority. It's a minority case. The case of what? Celibacy. Celibacy. Living alone without a mate and being pure. Paul said that was his gift. And he commended those who had that gift that there were some advantages of that because they could spend their time serving the Lord. Instead of looking after the needs of a mate and a family. He commended it, but he recognized that apparently it's a small set of cases. 
So we see here something within the nature of men and women, the companionship that is needed. The companionship with the mate who's like you, but who is different from you. And the two together have the ability, at least, to reproduce. Notice something else here. There's also the leaving and the cleaving. There's the building of a new family unit together. They leave the tutelage and care of mom and dad. They cleave together to become a whole new family unit. What does that say today? To the man who can't cut the apron strings or the woman who can't cut the apron strings. Right. Sure. Or anything else. Right. Sure. Yep. Yep. So, there's got to be the cutting of the apron. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about what that means and doesn't mean. But he leaves his father and mother to cleave to his wife. Now, the word cleave or hold fast to his wife, literally in the, the Hebrew behind the word picture of that is to be glued to his wife. What's the idea being communicated there? Permanence. Permanence. God designed marriage to have a permanent nature about it. Did you read about 10 or 15 years ago a new disturbing trend that had started at the time? I haven't heard much of it since, but there was a trend. There were these things that people were calling starter marriages. You hear about that? You know, a couple buys a starter home, for example. What do you, what do you hope to do with the starter home? You're going to upgrade, right? You're going to trade in that home for something else. You're going to upgrade. Starter marriages. Couples that were getting married, young couples that were getting married say, you know what, we don't have any intention of staying in this marriage. This is going to be a practice run for when we find the one that we want to spend the rest of our life with. What a mockery. What a travesty. God designed there to be a permanence. Now, yes, because of sin and because of our hardness of heart, there are two situations in the Bible where divorce becomes allowable. Allow, not necessary, allowable. What are those two? Adultery and abandonment. In adultery, the one flesh relationship between a husband and wife has already been violated. And so the one violated against is free to divorce. Because the one flesh relationship has already been interrupted. Now, divorce doesn't have to be a necessity. I've seen marriages come through that. But it's an allowance offered to the person sinned against. And in abandonment, Paul said that the offended spouse was not bound. By saying that they're not bound, he addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7. What, what's very clear is that what seems very clear from 1 Corinthians 7 is that the person sinned against, the person abandoned, is free. Now, the, the context for abandonment had to do, if you remember uh, the, the passage there, where a believer was married to an unbeliever. Now, up front, we know that's something that should never happen, but there were cases 
where there would be two unbelievers. Then one of them would hear the gospel, come to faith in Jesus Christ. The other one would not respond to the gospel. So then you have a situation of a couple that is unequally yoked. So the one who has become a Christian might be sitting there thinking, hmm, now that I'm a Christian, my spouse is not. Should I trade in my spouse for somebody who's a believer? What Paul say to the Corinthians? No. Not if the unbeliever is willing to stay with you. If the unbeliever is willing to stay with you, you will have a sanctifying effect on the marriage in the home and the children in particular. Well, what if the unbeliever says, I'm out of here. What's Paul say to the believer? Let them go. You're not bound. Because in that case, you don't know if you could have a saving effect upon them anyway. So that's the context there of that whole instruction on abandonment. But it's interesting, there's, there's no allowance given for the believer being the one to leave. The unbeliever may choose to leave. He's not, there's no allowance there for the believer bailing out. What's that tell us? Believers ought to always be agents of reconciliation. Right? Believers are to be agents of reconciliation. Now, when he says here that they become one flesh, it means more than simply physical. It implies the two become one as a married couple in, in every way. A, a bond. There's a spiritual, mental, physical, emotional bond. They become, they become one. They're, they're a unit now. And I believe this indicates that also that there are at least three relationships that are never to interfere with that one flesh relationship. Obviously, no other person is supposed to come into the marriage, an adulterous affair. But folks, by one flesh, the husband and wife becoming one flesh... It also says a word to parent, about parents and children, right? The Bible is clear. We are always to honor our father and mother. To honor our father and mother. But you know what some mamas and daddies need to say to their daughters or sons? You need to quit running home to us. Expecting us to intervene. You're you're married now. Y'all need to work things out. There's some parents. I've I've known. I've I've counseled with people. Known of cases where parent where parents will try to inject themselves in their children's marriage to a point. It actually becomes a wedge for their children. Because it's like the parent can't let them go. And the parent just keeps putting himself. Parents need to hear this. The husband and wife become one flesh. Don't interject your way in things in ways that you're not supposed to. Again, children are supposed to honor their father and mother. But children and parents both should protect the sanctity of marriage. And then let me say to young families too. A child, children are a blessing from the Lord. The Bible describes them as being your heritage. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. But you know what? I have seen couples that put their marriage on hold until they get their children raised and out of the house. 
terrible mistake. That's the couple that the kids leave the house and then they look at one another like, who are you? And their spouse is a complete stranger. Children will gain security by a mom and dad who continue to put a priority on the marriage relationship. Right? Children will gain security by that. Seeing a mom and dad in love. Kids who know that mom and dad are a team and they're together. It's a mistake for parents to put their marriage on hold to raise kids. It's a stewardship, sure, to raise those kids. But you don't neglect the marriage relationship. Now, as chapter 2 closes, there is a certain foreboding that is in view. Listen to me carefully before I close. Man is formed from the dust, but after sinning, what's God say that's going to happen to him? He's going to go back to the dust. God places the man and the woman in the garden, but what's going to happen after the fall? They're going to be driven from the garden. There are the trees from which they can eat, but he eats from one of the trees that he's not supposed to be eating from. And then the one who was given to him to be his companion and helper becomes a channel for the temptation. So there's a foreboding that we see between chapter 2 and chapter 3. The only bright spot is God who remains the same. Amen? He continued to love them and provide for them. And he has provided for us in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's making all things new. And, and we will once again someday be in a perfect garden. Where we will be in the very presence of God. Amen? Amen. Now... Let me say something to those of you here tonight. When we talk about structure and all that stuff near the beginning, in the creation accounts, we have to cover a bit of that to understand the flow of the text. Beginning next week, we'll lighten up on some of that, okay? Beginning next week, we won't be getting in the weeds as much as we've gotten in the weeds in Genesis 1 and 2. So there's that hope for you, right? If you don't like getting in the weeds.